If you have a Bible, please turn to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. To understand our gospel passage this morning, you, you have to know that this book, the Bible, is a story. It's a single story. Now, it's complicated. It stretches over many, many centuries, different cultures, parts of this story, whole books of the Bible or records of prayers that a group of people in a certain time prayed, songs they sang, some of the books of the Bible or sermons that preachers preached. But it all hangs together because it's telling a story, a single, sprawling, unfolding story. And the story the Bible tells is the true story of the world. And if you've read the first pages of the Bible, you know that this story begins with God creating the universe. And this universe is pictured in the story the Bible tells as a kingdom. So God creates the universe as his kingdom. And he's the king over it. He reigns over it. He rules over it. It, it operates according to his reign, according to his rule. Nothing is bad. God is this amazing God, very creative, powerful, beautiful, love just to the core of his being, grace, kindness. He's just. And this universe is just like that. It's a kingdom marked by beauty. Right? If you read the first page of the Bible, it describes this amazing, beautiful creation. From, from the stars in the sky to the littlest fish, right? That's some of what our stained glass captures, right? Day one is over there on the far left, and day two is over here on the far right, and day three is in the middle there, day four is in the middle here, and then day five and day six. And, and the stained glass is trying to capture some of, of the beauty of God's kingdom, and it's not just beautiful, it's full of truth and goodness. And it's like an incredible symphony. Everything is in harmony. The relationships between humans are harmonious. The relationships that humans have with God is without any kind of tension or, or distance or alienation. In, in the relationship of humans to the created world, it, it, it has no exploitation in it. The whole thing is just webbed together with peace and joy and harmony and purpose. That's how the story begins. But then a catastrophe occurs. Adam and Eve give God one of these. <laughs> They're like, your mama, we're on our own. You can't tell us what to do. And they assert their autonomy. And the consequences of that move are universal. Humans are cut off from the good beginning. We're in the middle of a mess. The entrance of sin into God's beautiful, just, um, good and true world is a calamity. The whole thing is wounded. All of those relationships that were so good and easy and, and such a blessing, they're all twisted. There was once peace. Now there's hostility. Everything is out of sorts and broken. God is still king 
in principle, but in sin, the primary characters of the story other than God, humans, have rejected his kingship. And we've erected on the earth an enclave of rebellion. And Satan, the usurper, has asserted his power. Now, God doesn't just leave it at that. He's not like, oh, cool, a rebellion. Yeah, you can have it. No, no, no. Like that song we sing, this is my father's world. He's not letting go, right? He continues to love this world and to love humans and to love creation. And so God, God makes this move toward the world where he's going to sort it all out. And the move God makes toward the world is Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. God takes this commitment to Abraham. And he says, Abraham, here's the deal. This whole thing is twisted. But I'm going to enter into a relationship with you and with your descendants. And in that passage, Genesis 12, 1 to 3, when God calls Abraham into this relationship, Five times God tells Abraham he's going to do something. There's a word in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, that is repeated over and over and over five times. Does anybody know the word? Blessed. That's right. Five times God says, I'm going to bless the world. Now, the interesting thing is that from the time sin entered the world up until Genesis chapter 12, the word curse is used five times. So God is saying, look, tit for tat, I'm not letting this thing get away from me. I'm not letting Satan or death or decay or hostility or conflict or injustice or any of those things. I'm not going to let them have the last word. Now, as part of God's relationship with Abraham and his descendants, he promises them land called the promised land. And Israel lives in this land, but over time, they do the same thing to God that Adam and Eve did. They give God one of these. They say, no, you can't tell us what to do. We're going to do our thing. They assert their autonomy. And God disciplines them for this. And he judges them for this. And part of the, this involved repeatedly allowing them to be captured by other nations. And over the course of time, God began to reveal to Israel that, hey, there's more to this story there's a key to this story that is yet to come. And the key is I'm going to send a very special agent of mine, a Messiah. And this Messiah is going to establish in a decisive way life the way it was meant to be. He's going to bring back my kingdom. He's going to bring back my reign where there's not conflict, where there's not hostility, where there's not injustice, where there's not ugliness. So when God, Mark's gospel begins, the first verse of chapter 1, we find John the Baptist. And when this guy appears on the scene, he's speaking into the context of this story. A story where God's people, the people of Israel, are just filled with expectation. They are longing for God to send that special agent, to send that Messiah to make everything right. So when we get to John, Mark chapter 1, verse 14, Jesus stands up onto the stage of history and says, 
I'm it. I'm the special agent. I am the Messiah. I am the one that Israel's been waiting for, not just for Israel, but I am the hope of the nations. Notice Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. So when Jesus steps forward into public view, the very first thing he says is, that long story, those ancient promises, is coming true right now in me. In me, God's kingdom is breaking back into this realm of resistance. This was what all of Israel had been waiting for. And and notice the gospel here, if you let this define it, the gospel isn't some advice. And it's not a political agenda. And it's not a new form of spirituality. Now, it eventually leads to advice and it leads to agendas and it leads to certainly prayer and spirituality. But it's something more than all of that. The gospel, quite simply is good news. What's the news that's good? This promise is being fulfilled that God has brought his kingdom back. That in Jesus, in Israel's Messiah, the kingdom has come to the earth. That the one and only God, the God who created this world and everything that exists, This God, the living God, is at long last invading the rebellious realm. Remember, always remember, the story of the Bible is the story of how God is dealing with evil. And here is Jesus kicking off his public ministry by making the announcement that in him, in me, he says, the one and only true God is bringing the, his long work, the work that's chronicled throughout the Old Testament. The one and only God is bringing that work to climax. He's making all things new. He has come back to rescue the world from the invasion of sin and death. In that moment, when Jesus steps onto the stage of history, that moment is the turning point of history. It's not just what all of Israel's been waiting for for long centuries. It's what all the universe has been groaning and waiting for. And notice that this new thing that's happening, the arrival of the kingdom, notice it requires something of humans. It demands something of humans. It demands that humans do two things. Repent and believe that news is true. That's what it means. To believe in the gospel is to believe that that news is so good to actually believe it's true. Now, what are they having to repent of? Well, in this particular situation, the people that Jesus was speaking to, the people in the villages of Galilee, they had to repent of the fact that now that God is breaking in and dealing with evil and death and disease, for them to repent meant two things. 
It meant they had to turn away from the social and political agendas that, was, that were driving them into a crazy war with Rome. You see, these particular people were trying to bring God's kingdom, God's reign, through violent revolution. They had gotten themselves into a place where they thought the problem with the world was Rome and the solution was freedom from Rome. And second, for these people to repent, it meant they needed to turn back to giving Jesus, the king, their loyalty. And all of this is tied up, turn away from that stuff, and turn to, it's all tied up with the call to believe. The people in these Galilean villages, they were believing other stuff. They were trusting in all sorts of things. They were trusting in their ancestry. They were trusting in the land. They were trusting in the temple. They were trusting in the Torah, their laws. And Jesus was saying to them, trust in the good news. And what is the good news? Quite simply, that the kingdom has come in Jesus. The word gospel, I think that because it's a weird word, we bootleg into it a lot of assumptions. But the word gospel is just an older English word for a common word, news that's good. The word gospel just means good news, not bad news, not kind of news, but like good kind of news, good news. And the people in these villages, they were believing in different, a different reality. Jesus said, you need to believe the news that's so good. That the promise that God himself would rescue this world is happening in Jesus. Now, when you keep going through Mark's gospel, you see that Jesus proves that that's happening. You see that in his miracles. I mean, if you go, for example, to Mark chapter 4... Here's the king, Jesus, bringing the kingdom, restoration, and he's sleeping in a boat, and a big storm comes up, and it's such a big storm that everybody in the boat's about to drown. The king stands up, and he looks at nature, and does anybody know what he said to the storm? Peace, be still, right? The king is here. Nature, cut it out. Nature, I made you, and I did not create Rain to drown people. You're acting out of line. And I'm the king. And even nature yields to the king. And then in the very next passage, he rolls up into this this place where there's a graveyard. And there's a dude who's full of demons. He's demon possessed. He's cutting himself. He's running around. He's forgotten his name. He identifies himself by his addictions. And Jesus cast out the demons. I didn't make humans to be corrupted by that kind of stuff. The king has arrived. And he's showing us what life in the kingdom is going to be like. Life in the kingdom is going to be like there's no place where people are in bondage. So much so that their identity gets twisted and perverted. The next thing we know, he's talking to this woman who's been sick. She's got a disease. She's been 
with this disease for like 12 years and he heals her of the disease. Why? Because the kingdom is here. And in the kingdom, not only does rain not kill, tsunamis not destroy, addictions and powerful forces don't imprison, but disease does not get to have its way. God didn't make this world that way. And then the next thing we know, he's interacting with this little 12-year-old girl who's died. And he says, no, not in the kingdom. Death is not a part of the kingdom. And he raises a girl from the dead. And what are all these miracles doing? They're not proving that Jesus is God. They're, they're showing us what life in the kingdom will be like. They're showing us what the king, what the reign and rule of a loving creator is like. And then when you look at his teachings in Mark, In his teachings, he's talking about the kingdom. He's explaining the kingdom, what it's like to be in the kingdom. And then in his crucifixion, he delivers the death blow to the enemy. Sin, death, the devil. He wins the battle against Satan. He conquers evil and death. And on the cross, he sacrifices himself for us. Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world through his own sacrificial death. And he does this as our representative. He does all of this, the fight against darkness, his sacrifice for sins. He does all of this as our representative. Like David was Israel's representative when he walked out into the field to fight Goliath. Jesus is our champion, our representative. And he does this for us. And then he rises from the dead. And just like his death is as our representative, his resurrection is as our representative. He told Mary and Martha at the tomb of Lazarus. I am the resurrection and the life. And he is the resurrection in his dying. He takes upon himself the judgment of the world. And in rising, he inaugurates the resurrection of the world. In Jesus, God's new day dawned at last. That is the gospel. That's the news that is good. So when Jesus says, repent and believe in the gospel, he's inviting people to believe that's true. So what is the gospel? It is the news, the news that's good, the news that the one true God is taking charge of the world Through Jesus, the ancient hopes of Israel have been fulfilled. God's plan to put the world right has finally been launched. He's grabbed a hold of the world in a new way to sort it out and fill it up with his glory and his justice and his beauty and his goodness, just like he always promised he would do. The ancient sickness that has crippled the whole world and humans with it has been cured at last. So that new life can rise up. Life has come. And it's pouring out like a mighty river from Jesus into the world. And the news that that is happening is good. Jesus arrives and says, good news. God's plan to fix it all is here. And then in the next few verses... We see four individuals that make the choice to repent and believe that. 
verse 16. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. So verses 14 and 15 are a summary of Jesus's message. And verses 16 to 20 give us examples of how that message impacts individuals. Now think about this for a minute. We have no idea how many generations the Zebedee family had been fishing on the Sea of Galilee. But quite likely, it was four or five or even six or seven generations. Because in that country, in that culture, at that time, a small family business can be handed on not only through generations, but through centuries. The world hadn't experienced the Renaissance. There was no rising middle class. There wasn't upward mobility. Things were stable for centuries. It was safe and secure. People knew what they were doing. And if times got hard, you didn't move. You didn't get a new job. You just worked harder at the old family business. But then along comes this young prophet from Nazareth. And he told James and John and their neighbors, Peter and Andrew, to drop the business and follow him. And they did. Now, can you imagine that? All we have to do is think for just a moment a little bit about the sort of life Peter and Andrew and James and John had lived. And the totally unknown, unknowable future Jesus was inviting them into. And we can begin to see when we think about that how earth-shattering this moment was. He is asking these men to, to accept a permanent change of life. Leave everything you've known, all your security, your family. And remember, family solidarity was hugely important in that culture. Leave it and follow me. The way Mark tells the story, you're supposed to hear echoes of the larger story. You're supposed to think of Abraham when the same thing happened to him. When God said to Abraham, leave your, does anybody have this memorized? Leave your country and your father's house and go to the land I will show you. And Abraham, like these four men, accepted the call. Notice how Mark emphasizes their prompt and radical obedience. Verse 18, immediately they left their nets and followed him. And then this pattern is repeated in verse 20 with James and John. They left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed. So apparently the Zebedee family business was doing quite good because they had employees. And James and John leave prosperity. They leave their family. They leave their responsibilities, their identity, and they follow Jesus. And we should be very careful not to underestimate 
the significance of that move to leave your family in a culture where family was identity, to leave your father in a culture where honoring your father was what made you respectable, to leave your occupation in a culture where you could not get a new occupation. This would have been so shocking in the social context of that day where family obligations and stability of vocation was unquestioned. So part of what we're seeing here is that when the king shows up, we get to decide, are we going to be like Adam and Eve? Are we going to give God one of these again? Assert our autonomy again? Are we going to undo the decision of Adam and Eve and go back and say, the king gets my loyalty. The king gets priority. This is what it means to repent and believe the good news. Following Jesus means a break with the past and a willingness to let go of all other attachments. Now, I'm not saying that everybody who follows Jesus has to leave their family, has to leave their job. I'm saying everybody who follows Jesus has to be willing to put everything second. We have to be willing to yield to the king, to stop acting like the king is an optional, like boss, that I might take the job, I might not. I'll pray about it. I'll discern. Now, if we keep reading, we would see that in Mark's gospel, people respond to this message in different ways. I mean, some people respond with opposition. They're like, yo, mama, I'm not going to do what you tell me to do. Who do you think you are? I'm a human. I have autonomy. I got my truth. You can't just roll up in here and claim stuff that I've worked so hard for. Other people, they hear it and it just doesn't even phase them. They're like, okay, that's cool. I'm happy. I don't need in on that. My life is just fine. Other people are confused. They're like, wait a minute, what? I don't understand this. This doesn't make sense. And then there are others who with joy and gratitude, they're like, yes. You can feel where this is going, right? So what about you? Let's go back to Genesis 12. I'm paraphrasing. In Genesis 12, God says to Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham says, yes, Lord. And God says, I want to bless you. And Abraham says, hot dog. I'm, I'm all for that, right? And God says, yeah, but I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to all the nations on the face of the earth. Therefore, you have to leave. You have to leave. You have to get out of your homeland. You have to get out of your safety zone. You have to get out of your comfort zone. You have to go. You have to get out. And in our New Testament, that passage that James read us, chapter 11 of Hebrews it describes this moment perfectly. I love it in one of the new modern translations about Abraham in that moment. It says, off he went, not knowing where he was going. But because he was willing to get out of his comfort zone, God used him. And not just Abraham. You keep reading the story, Moses does that. 
Isaiah, Simon and Andrew in the passage this morning, and James and John. But ultimately, isn't it the hero of the story that makes that move the best? We saw this over the last few months in our passages in Philippians, that Jesus, though he was God, he didn't consider that that to be something to be leveraged, and he emptied himself. See, Jesus left something, but what he left was the ultimate land, the ultimate safety zone, the ultimate comfort zone. Jesus Christ was sent out into the world, and unlike Abraham and James and John, and he knew where he was going. He was going to death, and he went to his death. And he went to the cross and he did that for us and he saved our souls and he won our hearts and he was raised from the dead and he ascended into heaven. And what we see in all of these people in the story, we are getting a glimpse into the deep reality at the heart of the kingdom. It's this, the way up is down, the way to be rich is to give it all away. The way to be incredibly happy is to stop thinking about your own happiness and think about the happiness of others, right? In Philippians, have this mind in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be leveraged, but he emptied himself. This is how we learn to live our lives in the kingdom of God. This is the way God's kingdom works. This is the way God works. And he's always working. He reaches out to us, not when we hold on and stay in, but when we are willing to give away and be sent out, out of our comfort zone. This is how God works. And maybe you'll need to say, Lord, I will go with you, but frankly, I don't like going places that I don't know in advance where I'm going. That's like whatever that is on Myers-Briggs or that, that freaky one with the diagram thing, Enneagram. There's this whole certain group of people that they're just like, no, no, I got to know. Maybe you need to say to God, hey, I'm number 34 in the Enneagram. I've never been where you're sending me. And and if you do, I think God will say to you, hey, remember the Great Commission where Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples and I will be with you even to the end of the age? See, there's your answer. When God sends us out, he says, give away, get out of your comfort zone. And the more you give away, the more you get out of your comfort zone for the sake of of the kingdom, the more of me you will have. That's what we're looking forward to. Nobody has joy until you finally serve something bigger than your own interests. Until you've got something more on your heart than advancing your own career, than your own love life than your own hurts and aches and pains. When you stop saying, what's in it for me? And you start saying, how can I spend myself? You see, when we see Jesus, 
as God himself in the flesh, bringing God's kingdom, full of power and love. When we see God for who he really is, it can destroy our consumer mentality. It can destroy our what's in it for me learned pattern of behavior. It can turn us into men and women, boys and girls on mission. It sends us out. Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe this. Believe that that's good news. Believe in the gospel. How about you? Have you repented? What story do you believe tells the way to happiness? Is it any story but Jesus? Then you need to repent of believing in that story. You need to repent of the way that you're living a life outside of the kingdom thinking that that will work, that that will result in your happiness, that that will result in your success or your fulfillment or your purpose. Repentance means find the scripts, the stories that you've bought into that say there's any other way to be a true human, fully yourself, than the gospel, than in God's kingdom. Turn away from that story. Turn to the living God. Put your belief that Jesus is the answer. Now look, what if... If you're not a Christian, what if you took a step in this direction today? Just a step. Reach out to someone who's a real Christian, a friend, somebody in the church, and say to them, I want to start following Jesus. What does that look like? Coming to church is a big part of it. Way to go. That's a part of following Jesus. If you've not ever been baptized... That's the thing you need to do. We're baptizing next week. If you haven't been baptized, as they say, you know, brother, where art thou? Come on in. The water's fine. Like, we could, we'll baptize you. We'll bring you in. And just talk, call the office and one of our pastors will reach out to you and talk with you about what that means and how generous of God it is to offer you baptism. Look, if you've already been baptized and you're a Christian, but you've been acting like a fool, and you've been just like saying, I, I'll be at church on Sunday, but Monday to Saturday, I'm going to just live this other kind of way. You need to repent. Here's the good news. We're about to have our Lord's Supper. Jesus himself is about to offer you an invitation to come home for dinner. In Louisiana, growing up, we called lunch dinner. Come on home for dinner. Like, it's cool. Let's meet. Let's come back to each other. If you're already a Christian, if you've already been baptized, the best way to repent is to come home for dinner. Come to the table and on the way, just be saying to God, I'm so sorry. We'll get this sorted out. But thank you for bringing me to lunch. I'm hungry and I need you and I want to come back home. Let's pray.